This podcast is brought to you by the Village of Bedford Park, your home for business. Over 450 businesses strong and growing with a safe, reliable Lake Michigan water supply. Visit VOBPBiz.com and bring your business home to the Village of Bedford Park. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Now, the WBBM Noon Business Hour. It's 12.03. You made it to Friday afternoon, October 28th. Good afternoon. Thanks for joining us on the Noon Business Hour, presented by the Village of Bedford Park. I'm Rob Hart. Major oil companies are expected to report massive profits at a time when consumers are struggling with record high prices. We'll cover that in our next segment. But right now, several key reports involving the economy are out today, including pending home sales and consumer sentiment. We're joined by Gus Fauché, Chief Economist, PNC Financial Services, based in Pittsburgh. Gus, thanks for joining us today. Let's begin with the PCE index, personal consumption expenditures. It did go up, but in line with expectations, and on a month-over-month basis and a year-over-year basis, it was essentially flat. Yeah, so we are seeing consumers increase their spending even after adjusting for inflation, uh, but we do have a number of drags on consumer spending. We have high inflation, uh, we have higher interest rates, a slowing housing market. So um, consumer spending is very important. It makes up two-thirds of the U.S. economy. It continues to increase, but the the pace is, is modest. And then when it comes to home sales, pending home sales fell 10% in September. That was much worse than expected. Once again, those higher mortgage rates taking their toll. Uh, that's exactly right. I mean, that's what the Federal Reserve is looking to do. They are trying to slow growth in interest rate sensitive industries like housing by raising interest rates. And we've seen a significant cooling in the housing market this year. And it's going to further cool through the rest of 2022 and into 2023 as, as the market continues to absorb those very high mortgage rates. That we, you know, we haven't seen rates this high in 20 years. How much of the woes in the housing market are due directly to interest rates, and how much is it due to the fact that several years ago interest rates were extraordinarily low and people had nowhere to go because of the pandemic, so they decided to get a bigger house? I, I think it's mostly on the interest rate side. I do think that people, many people still want to move. Uh, younger people are looking to establish themselves. Uh, but with the big run-up in prices that we've seen over the past couple of years, the, the much higher mortgage rates we're seeing this year, it's just, you know, unaffordable for many people and will remain so until we see house prices come down somewhat, which I am expecting to see next year. Wages rose rapidly in the third quarter, pay and benefits increasing 5% last quarter compared to the third quarter of 2021, backing off a little bit from earlier in 2022. I know there has been some concern uh, by economists that uh, we could be in a wage price spiral. Uh, Is that one side of the Mobius strip? 
Um, you know, we are seeing strong wage growth because of the tight labor market. Businesses continue to compete for workers, push up wages. That being said, I do think that with the higher interest rates that we're seeing, the slowing in the housing market, we will see the job market cool off somewhat in 2023, and that will gradually reduce those wage pressures in the U.S. economy and help down bring, bring down inflation next year. And then very quickly, consumer sentiment edging up in the month of October, according to the University of Michigan, their monthly survey. The index at 59.9%, up from 586 in the month of September. So uh, what does this survey tell us about the vibes? Um, you know, it's it's telling us that consumers are still concerned about where things are going in the economy, but things aren't any worse in October than they were in September. I mean, households are benefiting from lower energy prices that we've seen over the past couple of months. But on the other hand, uh, falling home values, falling stock market, those are drags on consumer confidence. Gus Fauché, Chief Economist, PNC Financial Services, based in Pittsburgh. Thanks for joining us on this Friday afternoon. The WBBM Noon Business Hour continues. Major oil companies are expected to report massive profits at a time when consumers are struggling with record high prices. Let's get the very latest on the how the energy crunch is doing for the world's biggest oil companies from Phil Flynn, senior market analyst with the Price Group and Fox Business News contributor based in Chicago. Phil, thanks for joining us today. Uh, all year long, be here. we have been talking about uh, the run-up and the price of oil, and every now and then it touched $100 a barrel. It exceeded that. That, and uh, it would go to follow that uh, the oil companies would report uh, greater than expected profits. Where are they right now, and where is you know the, what they're reporting in the third quarter? Where is it in line with uh, their performance over the course of the year? I don't even know if big oil is the correct term. Maybe we should change it from big oil to enormous oil, right? I mean, we're seeing profits unlike anything we've seen before in the oil patch. ExxonMobil had a quarterly profit of nearly $20 billion. You know, they're getting almost as big as Apple. I mean, you expect Apple to do that. They make those kind of profits all the time. But for an oil company to do that, it's earth-shattering. And you're also looking, of course, at uh, U.S. company Chevron, the refiners. They had their second highest profit ever, 11.2. But, you know, really, when we talk about profits, you really have to think about what went into making those profits, right? And we're talking about record investment against a very unfriendly environment. And to be honest with you, you know, right now with the anti-fossil um, fuel agenda as far as investment, they better make a lot of profits to attract investments because there's a lot of people in the government to say stay away from oil companies because we're going to put them out of business. You know, looking back through the mists of time, uh, back to February of 2020, and looking at the state of the oil industry at that time, uh, it looks like it was a different century as opposed to just a different year uh, because the assumption was that eventually father time will come for the oil industry. There will just be gradual reduced demand. It was not going to be an area of growth. And there was there was disinvestment. Some of it was politically motivated. Others just looking at prevailing trends and started pulling away from the petroleum industry. And all of that came to a head this year as society became as society came roaring back to where it was thanks to thanks to vaccines and COVID cases going down and the, and the great reopening. And all of a sudden people wanted to drive somewhere 
there, and the oil industry didn't have the money or the capacity to uh, to, to meet that demand. What's going to happen g- going forward as things kind of normalize and we're back to where we were as far as uh, moving around the country? You know, to be honest with you, I think prices are going to stay high for fossil fuels for some time. You know, you would think that we might have learned a lesson, you know, with record high prices, people at the pump, people not being able to afford, you know, heating bills this year and potentially shortages and rolling blackouts in the United States, you know, in part because of this green energy push. Right. And you would think that, you know, we might say, well, wait a second. This isn't working. People are getting hurt. Right. People are losing a lot of money. Maybe we should rethink how quickly we're moving on this energy transition. But we're not seeing that kind of common sense. We're seeing the opposite. We heard the International Energy Agency double down saying, listen, if we want to get to net zero, we got to stop investing in fossil fuels. And, you know, we're hearing from, you know, places like the UK, the new prime minister over there wants to ban fracking. Um, and, you know, Europe wants to ban the internal combustion engines. And while these might sound like noble goals, it isn't reality. You know, and the reality is people have to get to work and they have to stay warm in the winter. And these policies are definitely making that a lot more expensive. The money these oil companies are bringing in, how much of it is being used to cover losses that took place in 2019, 2020 and into early 21 when the entire world shut down? Big part of it. You know, people forget that it was just a couple of years, as you point out, during COVID. You know, the price of oil was below zero. A lot of these companies were, were facing record uh, losses. Um, and, and there was a lot of concern that a lot of these companies could have gone out of business. So, yeah, I mean, when we look at these profits, uh, they're, they're doing, you know, they're really making up for, for money that they've lost in the past. And, you know, when you compare the profits of the oil industry to places like Apple and you compare it to other things, it takes a lot more investment to bring oil and gasoline, you know, to your corner gas station and bring it to your home to stay warm than it does to, you know, produce an iPhone, right? So, you know, when you you compare that, it's almost like comparing apples to oranges, the two businesses. So when you see these profits, you realize that they better be making profits. Otherwise, we're not going to have enough supply to meet demand in the future. Phil Flynn, Senior Market Analyst with The Price Group and Fox Business News Contributor based in Chicago. Thanks for joining us. Your daily transaction for useful information. The WBBM Noon Business Hour continues. United Airlines is looking at the future of regional travel with an eye on electric planes. Let's learn more from Paul Hockman, President of Humongous Media and former tech editor for the Today Show based in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Paul, thanks for joining us today. When we think about an electric airplane, we are are not go we, we will not see based on this description it will not be a battery powered version of the jet that we we all see in the sky it will be something else describe what this electric airplane will look like and how it will be used it's going to look that's a great question and and by the way one of the reasons it's not going to look like a conventional uh, aircraft uh, you know a jet that many of us are used to taking for for business trips for example is mostly because existing battery technology doesn't have enough power per unit of weight. In other words, it can generate tons of power, but it's in that situation. It can't propel a plane up into the air. Uh, the plane couldn't lift with current physics uh, technology. So existing, uh, existing things that look like that, what it will look like is a lot like drones. In other words, if you're 
you know, any sort of conventional or consumer drone uh, with multiple blades uh, is very, very efficient to fly that way. And where that's, that's efficient, where you're going to see that drone-like aircraft is in a lot of regional um, aviation needs that are not being served right now because it's just too expensive to serve small communities. So ironically, the conclusion here is that a lot of these drone-looking aircraft are suddenly going to make a lot of people who live in rural communities feel like pros because they're going to be able to fly private jets, if you will, electric, from one location to another. And that's what they're really aiming at. And what, what would the fare structure look like if you're not paying for fuel, but you're paying for electricity instead? Well, I'll tell you what they're aiming at. First of all, electricity, because the battery technology is, is changing so quickly, these planes, these sort of regional aircraft, these drone-like aircraft, are, can be charged in 30 minutes for those 200-mile or less uh, trips, which is what they're really attacking it. And the cost, what they're aiming at right now, is Uber-like costs. In other words, if they get enough volume, uh, and the technology is certainly improving, um, helped in part by some funding from the, um, from the Inflation Reduction Act that Congress passed in and then, very, and then lastly, Paul, when it comes to uh, what the, uh, the skies will look like in the world of 2072, it sounds like they will be a very crowded place. There may not be much in the way of road traffic, but all those traffic jams on the ground will be 100 feet in the air. Well, that's right. And the question I have is not what it will look like, but what it will sound like. Because anybody who's ever operated one of those drones knows that they can be really noisy. Uh, one of the major advances in current jet fuel-powered technology, the conventional jets we're now all in, is that they've made them extremely quiet by comparison to the older versions. And they're going to have to work on that technology for sure. But what will it look like? I think we're going to see fairly crowded skies. Uh, and I think that the, you know, the friendly skies may be a little busier than they are right now. Paul Hockman, president of Humongous Media, former tech editor of the Today Show. Thanks for joining us today. Still ahead in Entrepreneur Friday, a legendary Chicago restaurant and a retailer that specializes in love. Chicago's news, traffic, and weather station, News Radio 105.9. The WBBM Noon Business Hour continues. It's 1230. Good afternoon. I'm Rob Hart. These are the top stories on News Radio WBBM. The husband of House Speaker Nancy Pelosi is being treated for serious injuries after an attack at their home in San Francisco. A rock and roll pioneer has died. In a double dose of Entrepreneur Friday, we explore a Chicago restaurant with a 90-year history and a Midwest business that helps couples relight the romance. WBBM Business, the markets are higher. The Dow is up 742 points. The NASDAQ is up 254. The S&P 500 is up 78. We have 55 degrees right now under mostly sunny skies going up to 60. It's 1231. Topping our news at the half hour. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's husband is in the hospital after he was attacked during a home invasion. Correspondent Sagar Magani has the story. The Speaker's office says Paul Pelosi was violently assaulted by someone who broke into the family's San Francisco home. A statement says the attacker is in custody and a motive is being investigated. Paul Pelosi is in the hospital and expected to make a full recovery. Nancy Pelosi was not in San Francisco during the assault. Sagar Magani, Washington. Rock and roll pioneer Jerry Lee Lewis has died at his home in Memphis, Tennessee. He was 87. His talent and wild energy 
sprawl and a spawn piano pumping hits like great balls of high fire and a whole lot of shaking going on. Lewis's infamous private life included a marriage to his cousin, who was reportedly 13 years old. He was married a total of seven times. It's 1232. The Noon Business Hour continues, presented by the Village of Bedford Park, where uh, markets are substantially higher today. And we're joined by Shah Galani, Chief Investment Strategist with MoneyMorning.com, based in Miami. The Dow up 700 147 points, Shah. The Nasdaq up 255. The S&P 500 up 78. What got into traders today? Yeah, it's certainly a risk-on mode for sure. I think what got into them was the fact that a lot of them had shorted. There was a lot of shorting going on, especially on the bad tech earnings that we saw this week. And I think there were a lot of nervous investors going into next week when they expect the Federal Reserve to raise by another 75 basis points. I think a bunch of bulls just decided, let's go test the merit of the shorts and what their conviction is actually staying with those short positions. And they found out pretty quickly that there wasn't a lot of conviction. And we were able to just turn this market into a raging bull market, however long it lasts. It's enjoyable to see today. Why? What? What uh, is weighing down the big names in tech? I mean, Facebook, Amazon, Google, all disappointed. Was there a through line between all three? I think for the most part, as far as advertising goes, for the likes of Google, for example, then there's question of what will advertising dollars and spend be like going forward. As far as Microsoft, there was the issue of the cloud growth, which is a huge deal for Microsoft to not have that kind of Azure cloud growth that they've been seeing. Um, that's a big deal. Amazon um, also had a little slowness in their, in their cloud. Um, so as far as cloud goes, that's a problem because that has been the growth area for companies like Microsoft or like Azure. Um, and that speaks to the general state of what our, our corporations doing, what our businesses doing in terms of the cloud and storage and using cloud for everything that businesses have moved towards that, uh, that area for. So that speaks to what what is the state of uh, corporations. The corporations have done well that were able to pass along uh, cost increases and increase their product prices and consumers were buying that. They've done well. Their top line growth has been good. They have been rewarded by the market. Their, their stocks are up. And the likes of these tech companies that um, were hit, um, they're seeing a little reprieve today because the question now is, have we seen the bottom? And that's why another reason why we're seeing a lot of buying today. Um, investors are looking back at just October 13th, that big reversal day. And was that the bottom? And uh, if the, the worst is out there, is, is, is past us, and it's time to pick up a lot of bargains. The Dow is uh, working on a, a four-week winning streak right now. Is this simply a function that uh, earnings season hasn't really uh, yielded any major alarm bells about the state of the economy? It kind of reinforces the conventional wisdom? Well, that's a great question. This season so far, earnings season so far, has been such a mixed bag, it's hard to get a handle on really where the consumers are. They look to be better off than originally thought as earnings started to come out. Um, but you look at under certain areas in terms of consumption, in terms of corporations and big businesses, they're not as robust as individual consumers are. So you get a big mixed bag there and investors are trying to figure out, are the lows in? Fed's going to continue to raise rates. And another thing that's booing the market today, in spite of the fact that the bond market is selling off a little bit today, as far as the equity market goes, the new thinking, the new narrative is come November 2nd, the Fed is going to raise 75, but they're probably going to maybe initiate some talk of stepping down where future hikes 
won't be 75 basis, but likely to be 50 and then trail off to 25. And that's what investors are hanging their hats on today. So very quickly, what happens if we get to December and the Fed says, nope, it's 75 again? I think the markets will turn back around. If it's not so much what eventually they're going to start to quote unquote step down, which is the new narrative as opposed to pivot. They're not going to pivot anytime soon as in maybe for years and actually start to lower rates again, but they were, uh, they will eventually start stepping down. The question is at that point, how high will rates be and how long will they remain up there? And that's the question that investors don't want to deal with right now, because I think if they look forward at the prospects for continued high inflation, the Fed is going to keep rates higher for a longer, and that's going to weigh on the market eventually. So I think we're going to have a bit of a reckoning. Uh, this is nice, a nice, enjoyable rally, but I think it's going to be somewhat short-lived. Shah Galani, Chief Investment Strategist with MoneyMorning.com, based in Miami. Thanks for joining us. Coming up next in Entrepreneur Friday, helping people express the language of love. Investing 60 minutes each weekday for planning for the future. The WBBM Noon Business Hour continues. It's Entrepreneur Friday, sponsored by Industrious. And in this segment, the focus is on a Midwest retailer with 17 locations in the Chicago area. You've probably seen their ads on TV. We're joined by Michael Almond, co founder and executive vice president of Lover's Lane based in Plymouth, Michigan. Michael, thanks for joining us today. This has got to be uh, one of the busiest times of your business year, Halloween. Indeed. And it and it's just because a lot of people are uh, coming into uh, Lover's Lane to get all sorts of uh, sexy grown-up uh, Halloween costumes for uh, adult Halloween parties. Indeed, uh, more provocative, more risque. Uh, that's what we're, we specialize in. So when, when you opened in 1992, what was the marketplace like in terms of businesses that catered to that type of customer? Uh, well, for Halloween, it, was, it really wasn't existent at all. When we started out, it was more uh, uh, opening a, a venue for women to shop for ad- adult gifts, Romantic gifts, lingerie, uh, you know, back then it was peeps, peep show stores, uh, pornography shops. Uh, we tried to make something a little bit different. And trying to spear, uh, steer that space into what was probably then occupied by Victoria's Secret and Fredericks of Hollywood. Well, well they, yes, they, were, they existed, but they were kind of newly into the market, too, at least uh, Victoria's Secret's. And then, uh, you know, we talked about how Halloween is kind of one of the bigger times of your year. The other one is obviously Valentine's Day. And then is there just a steady drumbeat of business over the course of the year from, from bachelorette parties? Yes, uh, and uh, just gift-giving, birthdays, anniversaries, other holidays like holiday, uh, uh, Christmas, Swedish Day, believe it or not, even a little bit of Mother's Day and Father's Day people buy gifts from Lover's Lane for. And then this explosion in provocative grown-up Halloween costumes. I mean, I, I, you know, I noticed it beginning in college, I suppose, and it just continued to kind of gain steam over the next 20 years. Uh, is this a case where kind of the marketplace found you or Lover's Lane was actually a, a, a pioneer and, and brought the market to it? Well, I would say we're kind of a pioneer, um, you know, Halloween was not really something in our 
romantic gift portfolio, if you will, and it was a way of attracting a different customer to the store. So, you know, we've used it as a, an opportunity to expose other people that wouldn't normally walk into a Lover's Lane store. And then over the course of, uh, of, of, of the history of the business of 30 years now, uh, during its uh, various uh, phases of expansion, uh, did you guys encounter any uh, uh, pushback or resistance from uh, uh, local business leadership or concerned citizens uh, that, didn't want, that didn't want to open a lover's lane in their town? Uh, almost always. <laughs> <laughs> Um, uh, unfortunately, there's always the, the two or three percent that uh, just are very vocal and uh, obstinate about our, uh, you know, residency and their 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 community. And then how has the Internet changed things for Lover's Lane versus, you know, in terms of not only how you market the store and reach customers just uh, through a, through e-commerce, but also uh, in the ways in which people talk about sexuality and talk about what they want and, and discussions that, uh, that, that, that uh, couples have among each other? Yeah, well, we view the Internet more as an advertising channel. We're predominantly a brick-and-mortar uh, Retailer, probably 95% of our sales come through our stores, even though we have multiple websites. Um, but it's, it's just an avenue for our blog, for our, our podcast, and for people to pre-shop before they come to the store. It's amazing how many people come in and they already know what costumes they want to look at or what uh, adult novelty they may want to look at or a toy, et cetera, or even lingerie. They, they pre-shop online. Well, with uh, the clock ticking towards Halloween, if you want to be a, a sexy nurse or a sexy teacher or a sexy chairman of the Federal Reserve, uh, you can go to Lover's Lane. They got you covered. Yes, indeed. <laughs> Michael Alman, co-founder and executive vice president of Lover's Lane, based in Plymouth, Michigan. Thanks for joining us today. Still to come on this Entrepreneur Friday, celebrating the legacy of a Chicago restaurant that's featured family ownership throughout its 90-year run. Discussing the news affecting your money. The WBBM Noon Business Hour continues. It's Entrepreneur Friday. In this segment, we spot the spotlights on Chicago's Twin Anchors Restaurant and Tavern, which has been in business since 1932. We welcome in Paul Tuzzi, owner of Twin Anchors Restaurant and Tavern, 1655 North Sedgwick, just north of North Avenue in Chicago. Thanks for joining us today. And uh, the, the restaurant is celebrating a big anniversary this year, I understand. We've made it to uh, 90 years. Uh, went from uh, the time where, before television was invented, I suppose, to uh, now the uh, streaming NFL games and uh, uh, a lot of changes, but a lot of things that have stayed pretty much the same at Twin Anchors for all this time. It has been uh, multiple generations of family ownership, but different families have owned it over time. Your family uh, purchased Twin Anchors in 1978. What was the state of the business and the state of the neighborhood when you guys took over? I always like to describe the transformation of Twin Anchors around that time as it was a neighborhood bar that served food. Gradually, we've morphed into a restaurant that happens to have a bar. Uh, so the food really took off. The neighborhood uh, um, changed and was uh, um, 
populated in the late 70s, early 80s, started to have uh, yuppies move in, which was a whole new uh, piece of vernacular. But uh, the one thing about the young folks moving into the neighborhood in those days was none of them cooked. So the uh, amount of food, the demand for the restaurant and the food and the ribs and everything uh, really quickly increased. And and the the two things that immediately come to mind when someone hears twin anchors is first off the ribs, I mean right off from from Jump Street, but the other one is that uh, at one time it was patronized by the chairman of the board, Mr. Francis Albert Sinatra. And now, is there any family lore about the time uh, Frank came in and uh, and and had a drink there? Oh yeah, he came in. Uh, we're not exactly certain how many times, but uh, the son of the original owner, Bob Walters, told me he came in uh, at least sometime during the 1950s. He definitely came in in the 1970s, and we were uh, proud to be able to bring ribs for to him for at uh, Chicago Fest for his, 60 orders of ribs for him and his whole orchestra. And um, I think it was 1982. And then uh, because the, 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 the bar has such, and the restaurant too, has such like an incredible uh, uh, atmosphere around it, and it just looks like it came out of another time, uh, it has been featured in movies. It was in Return to Me, and of course it was in a very pivotal scene uh, in The Dark Knight, where I, as I recall, it was where uh, we learned that uh, Harvey Dent has become Two-Face. Yes, yeah, that was, uh, that was filmed there. Uh, it took... Uh, Two days of filming for the that what was a fifty second scene, but uh, it was bo- both of those were very fun and to say the least interesting experiences. But uh, we we really enjoyed it and uh, we're we're blessed that uh, twin anchor the, the twin anchor scenes didn't end up on the cutting room floor. Paul Tuzzi, owner of Twin Anchors Restaurant and Tavern, Sedgwick and North Avenue in Chicago. Thanks for joining us. And, of course, we'll have much more because it'll be the subject of Lisa Fielding's Made in Chicago on Monday. So listen for that. We get it. Attention spans just aren't what they used to be. Heads in social media and eyes on Netflix. But what do people do with their ears? Well, for one, they're listening to audio. Americans spend 4.4 hours with audio every day. Oh, and you want the proof? Well, you just sat through this ad that's now approaching 30 seconds. What could you say to a potential customer in 30 seconds? Let Odyssey put together a media plan tailor-made for your unique marketing needs. Advertise with Odyssey. Visit ads.odyssey.com.